0: What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture & Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Kader, AIA.
1: This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world renowned architect. Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Chalk Lee. Chalk is a real estate executive who has served in leadership roles for multiple investment firms, most recent of which is the role of COO for Clear Mountain Capital, a New York City-based company that develops real estate and invests in technology that will transform the industry. He is also a professor at Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Preservation, and Planning. He previously worked at Predium Partners and began his career at J.P. Morgan. Chak is a graduate of Columbia University, like me, and also Baruch College. We'll be talking about The Cedar View, a multi-phase rental apartment development near the University of Connecticut. More broadly, we will talk about how technology can improve the process of developing for small to medium-sized developers. So thank you so much for being here with us, Chuck.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So real estate, it's often a family endeavor. How is your family involved in the industry?
2: Sure. So Growing up, uh, my grandfather was an engineer, and um, he had designed some buildings uh, throughout the world and uh, When he moved here we were he was a first generation immigrant and uh, we had the pleasure and privilege to be exposed to his work, to be able to see his blueprints, to be able to see what his life was like, uh, and my cousins and myself, you know, took a lot of influence from that and have continued to build on that over the years. Uh, Myself, I took more of a financial route Mm -hmm. to get more of the business sense. And and ultimately, my goal was always to come back into real estate, which had happened after my stint in high finance. Uh, My cousins are also in real estate, my brother's in real estate as well. Everyone's kind of gone into the industry through a different approach. My cousin is a d- designer by trade and uh, you know, a licensed architect and, and has moved into the development side as well. So you know we are all uh, we all take, took a page out of our grandfather's book, and um, hopefully we can bring that into uh, today.
1: That's awesome. What country did your family emigrate uh, to the United States from? So
2: my grandfather was from China, mm-hmm. and um, he grew up during all the turmoil, uh, mid-century turmoil. And, and so, uh, in wanting a better life for his children and and his grandchildren, ourselves, um, he uh, brought the entire family over to the U.S. back mm-hmm. in the '80s. Mm-hmm. And so we've been here for quite a few decades, you know, fully immersed. And uh, interestingly enough, though, for it is Asian American. Uh, Pacific Islander Month. Uh, it is.
1: <laughs> That's me too, and you, both of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting
2: tidbit there is that um, uh, some of my ancestors were actually here in the 1800s, helping out uh, in building the railroads, and so you know, quite a diverse history, I would say, in uh, in the United States, going back uh, over a century.
1: So interesting fact related to that for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. The month of May was selected because that was the first uh, recorded uh, immigration to the United States from Japan. Um, But actually, uh, there are likely uh, immigrants to uh, the United States from China and India uh, prior to that, that first arrival of Japanese immigrant, uh, specifically to work on the railroads. And eventually, for any people that are familiar with American history and our interest in that stuff. The Chinese Exclusion Act, which became the Asian Exclusion Act, was meant to uh, delay or make quite difficult uh, the path to citizenship uh, for uh, folks from China and from India. Ironically, the ones that had built uh, their railroads in the 1800s.
2: (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. I always love uh, talking to you about this kind of stuff. was (laughs) full of these these, uh, these facts, really make me feel like I learned something after the conversation.
1: So either uh, Chuck or listeners, if you need a partner for a uh, trivia night, I'm available. Um, <laughs> I actually have one trivia night uh, as I did go uh, at one point uh, and my friends weren't able to make it. So I just played anyway by myself and I still won versus other people's teams. Uh, this was in New Haven. When I was there one day. So I'm pretty good as a ringer if anyone needs. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Chalk, tell tell me what did you learn by working in financial services? Because you would mentioned that was part of your career path versus those of your cousins. And was that a really useful jumping off point to get into real estate?
2: Absolutely. The, the key thing that I learned uh, from the financial services industry is I think uh, most importantly is the organizational skill set, understanding how to organize and uh, utilize time very effectively and to keep uh, all these processes uh, corralled in in a manner that, um, I think applies very well to the development process for those that have gone through it. In addition to that, you know, being able to see how different companies operate in the capital markets environment, how their performances are tracked, what are the key things that people look at as it relates to uh, a certain industry, a certain sector, uh, very applicable and, and really, um, helped me orient myself as I started to cover more real estate, uh, companies such as REITs and, mm-hmm. um, home builders at the time. And then, uh, moving over, uh, having the opportunity to, to join the buy side, uh, through Pretium Partners mm-hmm. where, um, they were pioneering the single family, uh, rental industry and, uh, joined very early on and being able to see how a, company was built from scratch to where it is today which manages over 35 billion i believe Mm -hmm. uh, which is quite an amazing feat and being able to see that run up and creating a new asset class and laying the infrastructure down for all these other firms that have you know since joined uh single family rental asset uh was was quite the learning experience for me so definitely influenced uh my decision uh, to become a, a developer mm-hmm. and to be more uh, focused on uh, the asset side of the equation.
1: So then let me ask you this. You began your career at uh, around the time of the global financial crisis. And currently we're in what we can call our, call it now, I guess, the COVID turmoil, <laughs> the COVID turmoils, I guess. Uh, but how would you say you have Thought through and developmentally for yourself a robust strategy to be able to make money and do well despite uh, large amounts of downs and ups in the economic market in New York?
2: The key thing really is to keep track of supply and demand. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty rudimentary. I'm sure all of our listeners here have looked at that, into that uh, in great detail. It really is finding the product that is missing in the market product that is, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be the uber luxury, you know, $20 million type product for a condo. You know, there's a whole demographic of homeowners or, or want to be homeowners that are looking for a product that's, you know, more entry level. And that that demographic is um, typically underserved no matter where you go. I mean, if you look across the country, that demographic is is causing a lot of, real estate markets throughout, uh, especially in the southern markets, to to really be um, uh, heating up quite quickly. And so, Mm -hmm. I think keeping track of where the demand is coming from and understanding what type of product and really understanding that customer base really well to provide them the type of product that they're looking for, I think that is how we've uh, positioned ourselves well uh, from a development perspective.
1: Okay. And you teach at Columbia as well. So what do you teach at the school and do you feel that uh, there's a symbiotic relationship perhaps between being an investor and being a teacher and that one makes you better at the other? Uh, I teach real estate finance mm-hmm. uh,
2: and so it, it is pretty helpful um, to be able to say ideas and, and talk about ideas out loud, mm-hmm. uh, and in particular uh, being involved with a very diverse community of students uh, around the world, who share a similar interests in real estate, you know, being able to hear their perspective, and and me having the uh, the ability to to have intelligent conversations with them about cultural differences as it relates to real estate markets, having their perspective about how uh, in certain parts of the country they look at real estate, I think is. is is very helpful for me uh makes me a a better investor i think by incorporating these different perspectives and and thinking uh, about things from a global big picture as opposed to a market-centric type view so uh, i think i think it does uh, allow me to, um, to have that broader perspective and to think about things um, kind of out of the weeds, because uh, mm-hmm. you know as a developer, as you know, sometimes you 're just in the weeds, um, and so it, it's nice to have the opportunity to take a step back and really you know say things out loud and, and have a active discussion
1: mm-hmm.
2: about some of the things you 're thinking about so yes, I think I think they are symbiotic in that nature
1: awesome, and no one really ever likes the weeds, particularly if you're responsible for mowing the lawn and taking care. Uh, the yard. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about this project, the Cedar View. I think it's really interesting. So, tell us about Stores, Connecticut, and the site for the Cedar View in particular.
2: Sure. So, the Cedar View is uh, a project we've been working on uh, in the town of Stores, Connecticut. It's the town in which the uh, University of Connecticut uh, main campus lays. Mm-hmm. The site was formerly a golf course, uh nine-hole golf course, uh sixty acres, uh very, very scenic, very ni- uh beautiful type of site. And what we want to do is transform this golf course into a uh uh housing that would be appropriate for uh, the local community. There's been a shortage of housing there and you know it it's it's up to us as a developer in the town to really work with them to uh build out the type of product that everyone Mm -hmm. is looking for, right? Going back to my previous point, you know, from what we've seen uh, in other towns, you know, sometimes developers come in, they build what they want. But for us, you know, we've been uh, working in the town for so long that um, our goal here is to create housing that fits the needs of the uh, residents in the community.
1: Okay. And uh, give us a sense of the scale of the University of Connecticut and the city of stores in particular. What are the, the amounts of people we're talking about?
2: These aren't the same numbers that you would consider for you know in, in a larger city where mm-hmm. you talk about millions of people in a population. This is a small town where most of the demographic consists of um, students. Mm-hmm. That would be um, a substantial portion of 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 the residents in town, along with you know the more permanent residents such as the faculty members, the professors, the, and then all the other town residents in town that support all the infrastructure to allow all of this to happen. And so uh, in terms of total number size, you know, we're talking about the tens of thousands, not in the you know, say hundreds or, or, or millions of, of people. But mm-hmm. that being said, because of the relatively rural nature of um, the town and, and the surrounding areas... Uh, There's been a lack of housing, even for the population of this size. And so, um, you know, with every project that we're building, for example, Cedar where we're were looking to put in 250 units, you know, that's 250 units that's going to be very well received because there is a substantial shortage of of any type of housing Mm -hmm. in this community.
1: So I just got a few numbers from my research assistant whose name is Athif, surprise. So <laughs> we, uh, just to give you guys a frame of reference. So Stores Connecticut is 15,000 people, which is about a quarter of the size of Hoboken, New Jersey, as a point of reference. And the University of Connecticut's total, total enrollment is 32,000, which is about two and a half times the enrollment of Yale University, which is also in Connecticut. So. Talk to us about the development strategy uh, for this site and what are the stages that you have to go through in order to execute it. This
2: site requires uh, quite a bit of planning from a land design perspective. As I've mentioned before, it's Mm -hmm. a former nine-hole golf course, um, but that golf course only sits on the front half of the property the back half of the property the other 30 acres um, actually is a very scenic uh, natural landscape which you know we've offered to the community as uh, training that uh, into a public amenity space um, hiking trails and so forth that would allow the residents to uh, really enjoy the beauty of the landscape in that town and for us we want to focus our Uh, development on the areas that have already been utilized in the past, uh, particularly for this nine-hole golf course and, you know, the associated club buildings that were part of that golf course. We'd like to keep our development footprint relegated to the areas that have already been utilized and that way we can preserve a lot of this natural landscape of the surrounding, um, community. And so, um, that's one of the key things we're focused on. Um, we're also very focused on making sure we incorporate a lot of green spaces, mm-hmm. a lot of outdoor amenities. We, we want to make sure that, uh, this, this development won't just be a, uh, you know, something that we just drop on a bunch of houses on a bunch of apartments on and then, kind of walk away, this is mm-hmm. going to be a permanent, permanent uh, set of housing product in the town. And I would say into perpetuity, uh, given its, its location um, relative to the surrounding neighborhood. And so we want to make sure that it, it stand, stands the test of time and mm-hmm. that it provides a product that the town wants, but also uh, is keeping in line with the rural, natural character of the city. Of the town, rather.
1: So you mentioned the the idea of concentrating uh, development uh, while allowing for large portions of the site to remain natural. So yes, earlier this season we had the opportunity to uh, speak to urban planner Ifoma Ebo, uh, who's based in New York City, and her project is the perfect uh, New York Street. Uh, so essentially, a big consideration for the reimagination of the streetscape in New York City is how to handle stormwater management, um, which is a considerable issue for a city with so much uh, blacktop or asphalt. For an area that's quite rural, are there water-based issues in terms of stormwater management or flooding or rain management that you had to take into consideration as you uh, laid out the site and where you developed versus where you didn't?
2: Oh, absolutely. And this kind of ties into the the process of development for Mm -hmm. this site, Um, as you kind of asked before. uh, The land planning and the land design of this project was uh, quite intensive. There's quite a bit of topography uh, in town. And and as I've mentioned, regarding the natural landscape, there's uh, quite a bit of consideration as it it relates to wetlands uh, in the surrounding uh, areas and also part of our site as well. So, making sure that we are uh, very careful in designing a site uh, site plan that minimizes and avoids uh, any or all disturbances to any sort of wetland areas, and making sure that we have a product that can transverse some of the uh, topography uh, is something that uh, we spend a lot of time uh, and effort into trying to 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 design, and so. That is something that uh, is at the forefront of what we think about, particularly as it relates to um, water table, how the footprint of the building sits in relation to that water table, how that affects the type of foundations you would need, and the orientation of how you want to place certain buildings uh, so as to allow for a more efficient stormwater design. Uh, on the site, actually, we also have a Pre-existing man-made pond as part Mm -hmm. of the golf, uh, the the water hazard for the nine-hole golf course. What we're going to do with that is turn that into a a natural, uh, more of a natural amenity uh, within our community, such that uh, residents can lay out on the grass beside the pond. It's going to get cleaned up, but the the interesting thing about this pond is that it also acts as a stormwater management system where you can maintain the level of the water of the pond mm-hmm. through a system that allows for dispersion of water uh, over, time, over time, depending on water level, uh, to be dispersed into the surrounding wetland area, to be, have that more of a controlled process. So you know there are things like that that um, are, are pretty creative from, from what our engineers have done to, to really utilize the natural landscape to serve specific functions as it relates to uh, land planning.
1: That's actually a really great point, because when you contrast that to the earliest ways that development was planned for and executed in uh, beyond the urban environment. So in the suburbs, there was not an emphasis for what you just described, which is natural landscapes and water management. It was much more about efficiency. And uh, earlier this season, we had architect uh, Kenneth Namkung on the show to talk about his installation exhibit called uh, Suburbanism, uh, which invites uh, viewers and uh, people that uh, I visit to reconsider what the suburban landscape is and isn't. Um, so I find that uh, incredibly interesting to see the transformation of layouts uh, for the suburbs over time. So this project is in a opportunity zone. Could you tell us about what opportunity zones are and how you are utilizing this very lucrative form of public financing.
2: Sure, yeah. So the opportunity zone uh, regulation was put in place uh, towards the end of 2017 mm-hmm. and it created uh, certain areas that were defined by the state of uh, areas that could benefit from, uh, investment capital in the form of real estate development and also at other types of businesses, basically, um, trying to spur, uh, investment dollars in specific areas. And so for us, uh, in this location of where we are, um, we are situated with an opportunity zone and the way it works is, uh, in our investors that have, uh, invested their capital gains dollars into, uh, this project will benefit from a uh, lower amount of tax on those on those same capital gains mm-hmm. in the near term. And then in the long term, if they hold this investment for 10 years or more, any future capital gains that uh, came up from this investment will be uh, tax-free. Uh, that's a, a simplification of it, but generally that's the key benefit is that uh, if you invest a dollar today and this dollar becomes $2 in the future, after 10 years, that additional dollar of gain from this investment is not taxable. So a, a uh, very, very appealing benefit for, for investors who uh, are, are in the space of, of real estate multifamily investments.
0: And
1: I think what is particularly interesting is that it does not. it's a form of public financing that doesn't require an outlay of taxpayer dollars. So it's not a grant. It's not a loan. It's essentially foregoing tax revenue that would have been received in the form of capital gains tax and being able to propel or direct that money to uh, areas of need as defined by census tracts. And what's so fascinating is that that style of economic redistribution is actually one of the most efficient because it doesn't require that uh, taxpayer outlay. I think that is also the the mode or rather this program is now becoming a template for a new suite of opportunity zone inspired legislation. Uh, For example, there is one for uh, hemp and one for uh, cannabis or marijuana uh, that is uh, in various states of approval on Capitol Hill. uh, That is part of the budget reconciliation package. Uh, And there is also talk of the opportunity zone Style of public financing to becoming a tool for other forms of uh, specialized and targeted economic development. So I'm excited to see what that will uh, come to bear next year and the years after. So, Chuck, you mentioned the, the very thoughtful approach that you had to uh, land planning. So, say if our if our listeners were uh, driving up to the site and parking their car, help them understand what they would be seeing, what they would be viewing. Uh, as they would walk uh, through the site from that that initial uh, entrance uh, coming through in their car?
2: Sure, yeah. So the way I would position our design, at least least for the aesthetic of the exterior, is uh, in keeping with sort of the colonial nature of the the town. Um, So that's what you would initially get a sense of as you're driving up, but as you Continue to get closer and closer to our buildings. You'll notice that there will be some features that are a slightly more modern take to what a colonial style home mm-hmm. uh, could look like. And so, uh, what we're trying to do is is still exude that colonial aesthetic, but to bring in certain um, certain uh, things that we've seen in, in sort of the uh, newer developments across the country, um, incorporate those, such as you know um, large uh, industrial type design windows, dark color against sort of, uh, white siding, uh, chip lap or boarded batten. Mm-hmm. that will kind of give that, uh, industrial, slightly industrial chic kind of look. You'll have a brick skirt, uh, on a contrasting color basis on on sort of the bottom of the property mm-hmm. uh, of the buildings. Um, so it gives it a little more of a sort of modern touch to it. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, the the resulting outcome will give, would appeal to not just the uh, residents that have uh, grown up and have been accustomed uh, to sort of this Northeastern colonial style type uh, housing, but would also appeal to, you know, some of the, the new residents that the town is trying to attract uh, as they try to retain talent from the university and trying to attract more, uh, a younger demographic of, uh, that would serve as the future of the town mm-hmm. to be able to appeal through their aesthetic sense as well.
1: Based on the description, I think I might wanna live there. So <laughs> if, someone, <laughs> if someone wants to find out more, do you guys have a leasing website up yet or, or to be, to, uh, or forthcoming?
2: Uh, forthcoming, forthcoming.
1: So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know about the sponsors of the America Building Podcast. Redist is a new venture-backed technology company that is working to transform how public financing is used to encourage building construction across our country. The commercial observer said in an article about Redist, among the most archaic, opaque, convoluted, and labor-intensive processes in development is finding real estate incentives. It involves knowing Byzantine laws and regulations. It involves expensive lawyers and understanding politics on many governmental levels. In short, it's extremely difficult and extremely ripe for a prop tech fix. Learn more about Redist at redist.us. Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full service design firm based in Princeton, New Jersey. Following the legacy of its founder, the iconic architect, Michael Graves, the firm is helping clients of all sizes realize their building goals across the United States and abroad. Learn more at michaelgraves.com. I want to talk about PropTech. So that's basically the shortened expression to refer to uh, innovation, the use of technology within the property sector, more broadly, the, the real estate industry. So in your words, what is PropTech and why are you investing in it?
2: Sure. PropTech, in my words, is, to put it quite simply, is, is really the future of real estate. It, mm-hmm. it, there's really no other way to describe it. It is real estate development and management but brought into the 21st century in the form of technology that's been applied to all of the different sectors that we've seen in the last mm-hmm. few decades. Having been a developer, it's, it's frustrating to me to see that there's been so much technology that's been implemented and to revolutionize certain uh, other industries. And yet, so many things in the real estate world have not even been brought up to that level. There's no automation. Everything's done by hand. We're building things the same way we built them 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and the way I look at PropTech is that it's not, it's not a buzzword. It's really just how do we bring this traditional asset class into where we need it to be today and also where it needs to be going forward mm-hmm. in order to address some of these housing issues that we're seeing across the country, shortage of housing, inability to build homes quickly. And a lot of these things can be uh, solved through the utilization of, of prop tech uh, into this industry. And so for me, it's it's not just about investing in startups or, or uh, VC capital investments mm-hmm. and, and trying to find the next unicorn. It's really more about how do we make the industry better? How do we grow the industry going forward? And how do we make it more efficient as uh, technology has helped for the other industries that we've seen?
1: Mm-hmm. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the expression unicorn, uh, Chalk is not referring to a horse like animal with a horn on its head. Uh, he's referring to a, a company worth uh, at least a billion dollars um, on paper, at least <laughs> worth a billion dollars. And I think well, let me ask you this, Chalk, is in what you described the the future of real estate, there's many ways for our industry to improve. Uh, Because when you compare us to uh, sister industries, like say automotive and aviation, uh, building construction is, I think as the quote from the commercial observer mentioned, quite Byzantine. And although the Byzantines had quite beautiful architecture as well. (laughs) So what would you say within the realm of all of these options, there's shared economy, there's design and construction, there's financing. Tell me about some of the areas within the real estate industry that you think are particularly interesting to you for investment from the innovation perspective. Uh,
2: The most interesting subsector of prop tech, to me is construction tech, Mm -hmm. uh, or ConTech for short. And part of the reason why that's the most interesting to me is that that's where you really see the interface of technology, which is a uh, uh, more of an intangible th- thought process being applied to a brick and mortar asset and forcing that connection, that that conversation between uh, the technologists and the real estate developer or GC, you know, contractor, that, that's a very, very large uh, knowledge gap between these two uh, sets of professionals. And so with that large gap, I find that there would be a lot of opportunities uh, in which to facilitate these conversations, to facilitate the creation of ideas by bridging that knowledge gap between someone who might be coding uh, behind a, a computer screen versus someone who's on the site thinking about how much concrete to pour into a foundation. There's a lot of opportunity there for ourselves as people who like to think about both sides of this equation to to really help to identify ways in which we can change the way some of these processes are are currently working for development and and really find the type of products and and maybe incubate certain products that can specifically address some of these processes that have not been looked at by the technology side of the equation.
1: So within the world of construction tech, there are a growing number of investors. You have, say, investors uh, like SoftBank that have made mind-numbingly bad investment decisions, like in Katera and we work those dumpster fire companies. Uh, and then you have really interesting, thoughtful, very smart, intelligent investors uh, like Home Team Ventures, which really focuses on construction tech, focusing on housing affordability from 3D financing all the way to the financing of the the affordability itself, uh, making that more accessible. So uh, talk about some of the companies that you respect and that you see as potential inspiration for your work in prop tech investment as well.
2: I think that affordability angle that you mentioned is is very important, right? It really goes back to the beginning of this conversation where, you know, building the right type of product for what the demand is. Mm -hmm. And as everyone knows, the country is facing a shortfall of affordable housing. And so, understanding how do we address that issue? Mm-hmm. One of the ways to address that is, is specifically in making the home building process more effective, more efficient, more automated. And so, the stuff, uh, the, proper, the, the the startups that we're looking at. Are specifically focused on some of some of, uh, of addressing some of these issues. So, for example, um, how do you automate home construction? Uh, we are looking currently at um, 3D printing companies for concrete. We are considering investments into companies like these, along with potentially incubating technology from overseas that already have uh, demonstrated their ability to do so in in other countries and bringing that technology to the U S where you can print a foundation, right? It's not the entire house yet, but at the very least you can print a foundation in, in a few days. And as opposed to, you know, that foundation taking weeks to cure, to print, uh, to pour, having, uh, all sorts of labor laborers to be on site, to be able to, to pour that foundation. If we can automate that through a three D printing process Mm-hmm. I think that's where we'll start to see greater efficiencies in, in addressing how do we build homes faster and more efficient.
1: I think that's a wonderful point. I had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, 3D printer uh, Icon. Uh, when I was in Austin for the South by Southwest Festival, which locals call South by. So if you say South by Southwest, they know that you're not from Austin and I can absolutely see the potential to scale, which is one of the largest challenges of innovation in our industry. What I will say also, Chuck, is that I find that a hundred percent agree with you that uh, affordable housing is a big problem in the United States. I would would humbly offer that it might actually be the access to the affordable housing as opposed to the sheer count of it. The reason why I'm saying that is when uh, last year, Redis, we we decided to be all uh, virtual. I took that opportunity to uh, work from home in 12 different places over 12 months. So uh, several of those months were actually in Uh, different regions of Pennsylvania. One month was in West Virginia. And I would often go through small cities that, I mean, were visually, were not that unlike uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, where I live, whether it's uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, or Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And these towns would just be blocks after block after block of empty, boarded up homes, and I think that if someone's listening out there and can come up with some smart, interesting way to uh, make that useful, all of that embodied energy that's there, uh, in addition to obviously building uh, new homes in places like Austin, then I think we're, we're really talking about a big change for our country. So for investment in through venture capital in construction tech, what does that um, actually entail? Like, so what is the day-to-day process like and what, what actually happens when it is that you make an investment?
2: Uh, there really isn't a standard process, I would say, because, again, we're not the typical PropTech VC investor. Uh, the way we look at PropTech is more about solving the problems that we've seen in the mm-hmm. development process and focusing on the applicability of the technology rather than Making um, a variety of investments uh, into a portfolio of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really looking at companies one by one, and utilizing the technology to see whether it has a uh, measurable impact or improvement to uh, what the process is today. And we think those are the companies that that have uh, that will provide the longevity. And you know, they may or may not get the sky, you know skyrocketing valuations in the near term. But we do think uh, over the long term, uh, the companies that are able to provide a demonstrable uh, impact to the industry, the the value there will be recognized. And so there isn't a um, very specific day-to-day process mm-hmm. for it. It's more of a meeting different founders, having conversations about different ideas, looking at products that are out there to see how... They've been utilized. How they can be more broadly implemented and, and facilitate, facilitating a lot of these conversations, as I mentioned earlier, is you know from uh, from a technology standpoint. It's, sometimes it's hard to understand or, or be able to communicate across the spectrum to uh, someone who's been a real estate professional their entire life. There's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a completely different language, and so uh, I would say a lot of that is is being able to bridge that that gap in conversation. To be able to convey right what the issues are in a manner that is solvable from the technology perspective, and then uh, conveying the other way around to the uh, the hard asset, the real estate side.
1: Mm-hmm. And when and so, people? Oh, yes. sorry, go ahead.
2: And so, yes, a lot of it is 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 more of a, an organic approach where you know a lot of this is is conversation oriented and, and fitting the pieces together mm-hmm. as we work on. Um, projects.
1: And the expression that I've sometimes heard as a benchmark or a metric uh, for venture investors is 10x, which I believe refers to uh, looking to 10x their <laughs> investment when they invest in venture. Is that uh, something that you prescribe to, or do you take a more nuanced approach?
2: I think the from the tech perspective, there's definitely a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. to find the types of uh, platforms and startups that can give you that sort of target, but fundamentally, going back to what the industry needs mm-hmm. and where the industry needs to go from a social impact perspective per se, it's it's less so focused on that. We think that will come if the product is solving some of these very real issues yes. that uh, people see day to day. It's not necessarily a question about what capital markets are doing or how much capital is coming in from abroad or from which country and what are they investing in. It's more about what does this platform solve mm-hmm. and, and whether it does it in the best way. And so um, that's, that's where we that's our philosophy in thinking about the type of companies that we're looking for, and, and the type of, it's less so about the number associated with the return, it's more about the impact associated with the platform.
1: Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I think it's about picking, thinking about the, the bigger picture and not necessarily putting the cart in front of the horse. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building podcast, Chuck.
2: Thank you very much, Arthur.
1: Absolutely. Always and a pleasure. Thank you so much. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how iconic buildings In our country, were designed and built. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience, and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So, how can real estate professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team, of Michael Graves, and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Chuck on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, 7 Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Chuck and I have made donations to Project Destined, which is a nonprofit that teaches financial modeling and industry fundamentals to underprivileged students as a first step into real estate careers. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Qadir, and this has been American Building.